this nutritional wisdom that's in, that I think is inherent in the body of every creature that ever comes to this planet can only work if if we and other creatures are exposed to an array of wholesome foods that are phytochemically and biochemically rich. Um, as we moved away from that, and again, this isn't trying to criticize people for what they did at the time, but I think in retrospect, as we moved away from that, we've really, we've really um, created a nightmare, a nightmare for that's manifest now as obesity, diabetes, diet-related diseases. I was reading uh, an article the other day that was pointing out only 12% of people in the U.S. are metabolically healthy. Only 12%. And only and 80% of young people wouldn't qualify to get into the military. That is a sad commentary on, on, our, on our state of affairs. Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label that distinguishes soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock under the organic seal. You just heard from Fred Provenza, author of Nourishment, what animals can teach us about rediscovering our nutritional wisdom. Before we get back to our discussion with Fred about the importance of phytonutrients in our diets and much more, I want to remind you that going forward, we'll be releasing just one Real Organic podcast a week, which you can look forward to every Tuesday. Second, all of our interviews are available on video, and you can find those on our website or our YouTube channel. Lastly, we've made the second annual Real Organic Symposium from 2020 available to watch for free. You can now view all five sessions, over 10 hours of excellent content at realorganicsymposium.org, and see for yourself why it was so popular. Now let's get back to the conversation between Dave Chapman and Fred Provenza, author and professor emeritus of behavioral ecology at Utah State. Welcome everybody. And today I'm talking with Fred Provenza, who is a, a personal hero of mine and one of the, the great teachers about nutrition and nourishment. The name of Fred's book is Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us about rediscovering our nutritional wisdom. So, hey, Fred. Wonderful um, to be with Fred you, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. Fred's Professor Emeritus of Behavioral Ecology at the Department of Wildland Resources at Utah State University. And he lives in Colorado with his wife, Sue. I want to start because your research is about nutritional wisdom, but nourishment is the title of your book. And you didn't call your book nutrition. Do you see nourishment as something different from nutrition? I do see nourishment as something different from nutrition. Um, one of the original subtitles that we had for the book was Nourishing Body and Soul in a Changing World. And I, that's the flavor that I really tried to give the book. This notion that the only constant in life is change. How do creatures, including humans, cope with an ever-changing environment, embrace that environment? And then not just from a physical standpoint, but from more of a spiritual standpoint. Uh, however a person would want to want to use those terms. But that, that was the flavor that I wanted. So nourishment in the broadest sense, not just, not just 
nutrition, but uh, our relationship with one another, with the communities that we live in, uh, and with the broader peoples of, of the globe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I so appreciate, um, I don't know, your daring, because uh, I see that so often people tend to be either, um, I don't know, stuck in the poetry of a movement or, or stuck in the engineering of a movement. And, uh, you know, the hard science and what we might call the soft knowledge. And I think that you have really worked to unite these, these strands in your work. Um, you've done many years of, of work doing research about what animals eat and why. And including, you've taken on the daring task of what people eat and why, and how it affects us. <laughs> yes, and that I'm learning more all the time from teachers who, who really have spent their lifetimes studying people, and from some young folks, too, who are just gung-ho. And I'm constantly reminded how little I know about anything, actually. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when I started out as a young assistant professor... I was so interested in research, and, and all the research that's in those first three sections of nourishment is what came out of that, and loving that. And I didn't really, uh, wasn't so interested in teaching. It was very intimidating to me to get on the other side of the desk now, and, and, and it was something I did because it was required and tried to do a good job. But by the end, that was the part that I loved the most, and that was the part when I left Utah State University that I missed the most, was that, that relationship with the, with the students in the classroom where we could be sharing. It was just, it was just stunningly good. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that, which I think is very important. It's kind of the end of the book. I, let me say to people, and, and then we're going to dive in, but let me just say that Nourishment is a very, uh, it is a large book and it is a dense book. And I don't mean that in any negative way, but it takes a long time to read because for me, every page requires some reflection. And uh, it's, it's, it's filled with real content. So uh, let's, let's dive into the early part of the book for, for a little bit because uh, Certainly many people are interested, people who are coming to this symposium are interested in nutrition as well as nutritional wisdom, which I think is where your research is so interesting. You're, you're not just looking at, at um, what is good for an animal, including a human animal, but you're also looking at where do we find the wisdom to make good choices about what to eat. So let's talk about, I think one of the things that you talk a great deal about in the book is uh, phytochemicals and phytonutrients. So as if, as if I didn't know anything about it, maybe I'd never read your book and I don't know much about nutrition, but I'm very curious. So could you explain to me what's the big deal there? What are phytochemicals and why should I care? So this, this whole area of phytochemicals um, has come to be a major emphasis it, in my world, and uh, it's something that um, happened in a way, quote, by accident. Um, 
I was working with goats down in southern Utah. We were using them as mobile pruning machines to prune this shrub back brush during the winter time, which stimulates new growth. And we knew that new growth was higher in what, what I often refer to as primary compounds, energy, protein, vitamins, and minerals. We've done the lab analyses. This stuff is, is really good feed. The problem is the goats didn't want to eat that, and it became so obvious. Most of the goats, there was a small percentage, 10 to 20 percent, that, that liked it, but most wouldn't touch it. And that got me involved in this whole area then of these phytochemicals or phytonutrients. And we, uh, long story short, we did a bunch of analyses working with natural products chemists and bioassays, as they're called, to try to figure out why won't the goats eat the new growth of black brush. And what we discovered was that it's very high in compounds called condensed tannins. They're a kind of, uh, these are a bunch of big words, and I tell people don't get bogged down in any of that because in the end it probably doesn't matter. But, you know, so you have this group of, that are called phenolics, and there are many thousands of compounds that are phenolics, but tannins are phenolics. And in very high concentrations, they deter animals from, from eating plants. And so that was happening at the time. This, it's this whole field of plant um, in ecology of, of plant chemistry was really just ballooning and people were studying all these secondary, what they referred to as secondary compounds, and I did too, that were in plants and the roles they were playing in herbivory. And at that time we now were- Now why did they call them second, why, why did they call them secondary compounds? Very good question. What does that you mean? Know, they called them, they were referred to as secondary compounds because nobody, well, originally they were referred to as waste products of plant metabolism. And that was when, you know, the biochemists back in the days were studying plants and trying to figure out how they work. And they realized their energy and protein and minerals and vitamins and so forth that plants make and that they need and how they, you know, synthesize all that. But there's this whole array of other compounds that nobody knew what they were. And I laughed when I uh, got involved in that because it, it made sense. Well, maybe that's just kind of the feces of the, the plain oil pile. <laughs> but come to find out, they weren't waste products at all. And in the days that I got involved, they were referred to as secondary because we knew that the primary compounds, energy and minerals and, and so forth, were critical for growth and metabolism, but people didn't know the roles that these secondary compounds were playing. Well, come to find out, uh, now I don't think anyone that's involved in that field would call them secondary even. They're primary. They're absolutely essential. Uh, they're, they're what mediate all these amazingly interesting interactions that plants have with their environment, from talking to one another with volatile compounds, from alerting insect predators that I've got a, a an insect that's preying on me why don't you come over here and eat this insect to you know below ground interactions to plant plant they, they're just these compounds are fundamental um, so so that was one part of the revelation to me but um, I was asking are there you, are there a lot of these compounds oh, there's spread? tens of thousands and they go in broad classes phenolics would be one broad class um, 
terpenoids, terpenes are another broad class, alkaloids are another broad class, and there are tens of thousands of these compounds. The strawberry, for instance, produces 5,000 volatile compounds. Can you even imagine? I can't even, when I think of Harry Klee's work, and I very much respect and admire, you know, when they say 5,000, it's just mind-boggling to think. And some of those are what are referred to as flavor-enhancing volatiles. So they make the sweetness, for instance, in a fruit seem sweeter than it actually is. So the plant doesn't have to allocate quite so much sugars to that. Um, so the roles just go on and on and on. But in chemical ecology, they've had, from the plant animal standpoint, plant herbivore, they've had a negative connotation because we, we came to view them as deterrents. They deter herbivores from eating plants. And in agronomy, they took on a very negative connotation because they were viewed as toxins. Uh, if you want to grow uh, pasture plants and you want to have a monoculture of plants, these compounds set limits on how much of any one food an animal can eat. So if you want to re get rid of those limits, um, then you select for varieties that don't have high concentrations of, of these compounds. And that, that really occurred, I think, across the board in pasture plants. And it, 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 this is not a critique that I'm making. It's simply not realizing that if you have a diversity of plants out there, each with different kinds of these secondary compounds, and if they're eaten in small amounts, that they can have incredible health benefits. And that, that's my views have really changed over the years away from, well, they're not toxins and deterrents per se. It all depends on the dose. Like Paracelsus said ages ago, everything's a toxin. <laughs> the difference between a toxin and a nutrient is the dose. And uh, so... So you're suggesting that they're actually medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Medicine for, for the body. And, you know, I think of all the studies that I did early on in my career, following animals around, looking at what they ate, quantifying how much of things. And it was common to see three to five plants as the bulk of the diet, but animals would eat another 50 or 75 plants. And back in those days, I was really linear thinking, you know, predict and control kind of physics envy back in those days. And if we could understand this well enough, we could predict and control what they're going to eat. I, that went out the window with me many years ago. But what I did come very much to appreciate is that that other 50 to 75 that they're eating in those small amounts is really providing cells and organ systems with exposure to this vast array of these of these compounds in the body. And so, um, for instance, a, uh, a cell that might become cancerous, if it has access to certain kind of phytonutrients, they can, they can inhibit the, the growth and development of cancer. You know, all the seven hallmarks of cancer can be deterred by these by these uh, phyto, phytochemicals that are in plants. And I think the more, the more that people study that, the more that area of knowledge and appreciation is growing of the value of these compounds for, for the health of livestock and then for our health as well. Great. So let me, let me just back out for a moment. 
Um, these compounds, some of them are made uh, by the plant. Some are taken up from the soil. Is that correct? There, there's some research that's showing some relationships with with organisms in the soil and the secondary compounds, but I would say the vast majority are synthesized by the plant, and there's there are different biochemical pathways um, that are known and and well studied for how the how the how plants elaborate these. What's amazing to me and very interesting is um, take. Uh, plant like larkspur for instance it's it's delphinium it's delphinium it's an ornamental plant out here in the west there are many species of larkspur um, one that we studied quite a lot is called tar larkspur and it creates alkaloids but it doesn't just make one alkaloid it produces 20 or 30 different alkaloids and then you start to get into, well, why would the plant produce not just one? And is there a cost to the plant in doing that? And you start to realize there's multiple, multiple value in creating not just one alkaloid, but in creating this diverse array, and that there's very little additional cost to the plant to simply change the structure of those. So um, it's an amazing, amazing topic to me, this whole and talk about miracle. I, I just think of what plants do and how each plant becomes unique in its relationship with the environment and the, the kinds and amounts of these compounds that it will elaborate. When we're talking of thousands of these, you know, you just, it, it's amazing. We, I'm involved with, with uh, Stefan Van Vliet at Duke and with Scott Kronberg in Mandan with ARS, we're really going after studies of how the diversity of plants in the diets of livestock, of plants growing on, on, on pastures or on rangelands, but how that diversity influences not only the health and well-being of livestock, and that's everything from chickens to to um, hogs to cattle, sheep, goats, you know, whatever, whatever it is, but how that, that diversity in their diet influences their health and then how that influences the phytochemical and the biochemical complexity of meat and dairy products. And it's, it's really, um, it's really news to most people that phytochemicals can get into the um, into the meat and into the fat. Many of these phytochemicals are fat soluble, so they'll get into the fat um, and into the meat as well. And then that those phytochemicals also change the biochemical nature of the meat. It's it's a virtually unexplored area when it comes to research and to human health, but um, it's for certain, based on scientific review articles that we've written, that those that the, the diversity of plants in the diet influences the phytochemical and biochemical characteristics of, of meat and dairy products. There's, there's no question. And then you get into the question that you raised, which is one that we're, we're quite interested in. And, um, you know, well, what about the other what do they say now? There's 120 
thousand compounds compounds in the human food dome, you know, and so, and when it gets into meat and dairy, there's a huge diversity of, of compounds, and there are techniques um, that can be used nowadays, referred to as metabolomics. It's it's a big word, and a it's a it's a way though to really look at vast arrays of compounds that get into whatever you're interested in, in this case, meat, meat or dairy products. And we've done a study that links back to your question, where we compare um, a plant-based meat alternative with real meat from a, an incredibly diverse landscape that we know these animals are eating huge variety of different plant species. And there is no comparison when it comes to the to the phytochemical and biochemical complexity of of the the meat coming from the animals on the diverse pasture versus the the plant-based meat alternative it's just night and day difference between the two yet if you look at the labels if you look at the nutrition labels they look identical when you look at 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 the things that are put on that are put on labels. We have a paper that's uh, been submitted to Science that's that's laying this this story out, and we put the labels in there, and you you wouldn't you wouldn't realize that there's any kind of difference to to simply look at the nutrition fact sheet labels on those, and yet when and, you and look at the metabolomics. Um, information that's in that paper you'd say you, they're not even the same thing they're not even close and, and what, would you expect there what, to be a, a health consequence to the exactly person eating that i was going <laughs> that's really what what we we want to to look at in depth is to to do clinical trials and we're, we're working hard to get funding to do those kind of trials where, where we look then at the the implications for human health um there's been so little done of those kind of trials that really looks at, at, at phytochemical complexity of the diet and how that's influencing these, these uh, meat and dairy products. It's amazing when you, when you get into the scientific literature how little's been done. And one could argue, oh, there's been a lot done, for instance, omega-3 versus omega-6 um, ratios and CLAs and so forth. And certainly there is a literature that's developed around that, but but it's so much more complex than simply looking at omega-3 to omega-6 ratios. It's absolutely your question. And I think um, that that's what needs needs to be explored. I There's one, one paper I like to talk about that came out of Australia several years ago, and they were comparing um, inflammatory response in the body. Anytime we eat a meal, there's an inflammatory response. But the degree to which that occurs depends on what we're eating and as well as other factors. But what we're eating influences that. And it's this chronic, systemic, low-grade inflammation that people link so much back with, with health issues like cardiovascular disease and cancer. And so um, but they, so the researchers were looking at these markers of inflammation and they were feeding people in what's referred to as a crossover design. I'll explain that in just a second. But they were feeding people meat that came from kangaroos that were foraging on diverse pastures in Australia and meat from Wagyu cattle that came out of the feedlot. 
And uh, <clears throat> so they'd run that for the first sequence and feed it to the people and then look at inflammatory markers. And the responses were night and day different. There was hardly any increase in inflammatory markers with the kangaroo meat and huge increases and sustained increases with the Wagyu cattle. And the crossover is simply that one group of people first gets the kangaroo uh, meat and then they get the cattle meat. So, so you, they're both getting both meats. That's a detail that doesn't matter, but the key was that there was this huge difference in inflammatory response. There's one study that's been done on the globe related to that. It's, you know, I, I'm coming from this other background, but it was so interesting in writing nourishment to try to try a little bit to get into the human nutrition literature. And I, you know, hardcore nutritionists probably annihilate me for what, what I have tried to, but just that comparison of what we studied and what people study about people and then getting into literature like this that links diets of livestock with human health and realize only one study ever done. So we're very interested in doing those kind of studies and then longer term clinical trials um, that really uh, measure over a period of, of a month or longer and the, the responses to different different kinds of foods in the diet related to, to this phytochemical complexity. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that seems clear from talking with you and, and, and other people who have been part of this, this conference is that, I, I don't know what to call it, except there's this grand experiment going on where what we call food um, is becoming something quite different from what it was, say, 50 years ago. It's becoming quite different. And the outcome of that is, is unknown. We are the lab rats, but it's, it's the, the preliminary results are not promising. <laughs> so could you, could you talk about that for a minute? I know that you've, you've, you've followed the, the research, the decline in nutritional content of food. Yes, absolutely the case. That's... So many thoughts come into my into my mind when when you mention that, but it, the real organic pro project and what what you folks are doing to me is just back to fundamentals and so incredibly important. I think th this nutritional wisdom that's in, that I think is inherent in the body of every creature that ever comes to this planet can only work if if we and other creatures are exposed to an array of wholesome foods that are phytochemically and biochemically rich, um, as we moved away from that, and again, this isn't trying to criticize people for what they did at the time, but I think in retrospect, as we moved away from that, we've really, we've really um, created a nightmare, a nightmare for that's manifest now as obesity, diabetes, diet-related diseases. I was reading uh, an article the other day that was pointing out only 12% of people in the U.S. are metabolically healthy, only 12%. And only 80% and of young people wouldn't qualify to get into the military. That is a sad commentary on, on, our, on our state of affairs. And so certainly that's... And then how do we get back to 
letting this wisdom of the body be manifest by it, by only producing uh, wholesome foods. That that to me is and and uh, you know the plant based meat alternatives are are to me simply another processed food. They're, they're another uh, another processed food. So. Um, I, I, so we seem to have two two different challenges that we're facing as a species now. I mean, I I really think it's a pretty serious. What what's the level of obesity in America? Seventy five percent of a pe of people are either overweight or obese. Seventy five percent, three out of four people are, are and, overweight. And or according obese. to this, according to the Center for Food for uh, Disease Control, what what percentage of people are going to die of diet-related diseases? Yes, there you go. That you know, and then you think of the cost to society of that, right? You think of that, that externalized cost, and you think about the value then to societies of growing and eating wholesome foods, plant and animal foods, and uh, there's just. It's just incredible. And we've seen this within our lifetimes, of course. You know, when I was a, a young boy growing up in the in Salida in central Colorado, most people grew gardens. And many of those people that had come from Europe, from one or another countries, they had chickens, they had a hog. They didn't have big yards, but they grew incredible gardens. And uh, they were their palates were still linked in wholesome ways to to foodscapes. And I think during our lifetime, then we've seen that change. And I think it caught everyone by surprise. I just think of growing up and think of my parents and uh, the changes that occurred over time. And when you got away from whole wheat products to, to white bread and, you know, just the things that you, you saw happening that you really weren't, weren't aware of. And we really, we've really disincentivized real food and incentivized all the fake food. So, I mean, the food industry has learned fabulous ways to incentivize um, processed foods. Yes. And at the same time, you know, through the varieties we've selected, the conditions under which we grow foods, um, we pick green and ship, all those things have disincentivized real foods because they don't taste good and we've incentivized fake foods because we've people have studied the heck out of how to make them appealing you know with with great kind of flavors that are linked with a blast of energy from um, high fructose corn syrup and one thing or another and you know all the work that we did on these flavor feedback relationships in animals that the flavor feedback has to do with this, and this was stunning to me when we first started, the idea that palatability is more than a matter of taste. It involves feedback, and yes. that feedback is coming from cells and organ systems throughout the body, including the microbiome. There's a big focus nowadays on the microbiome per se, and I appreciate that, but I think we, it, it's, it's so focused, it's become a bit myopically focused. You know, if you look at the liver versus the brain versus the microbiome versus the muscles, they all have different needs. And this feedback is the way that the body sends messages through neuro 
peptides, neurotransmitters, hormones to the palate to alter liking for the flavor of food as a function of need. And uh, does that so make how, sense? Yeah, but how did we all get so confused then? Because we see this beautiful system of nutritional wisdom that has worked for millions of years. And, and let's face it, right now, when we rely on taste instead of what we read in a book, we end, end up eating Doritos. That's not everybody. Not everybody, but many people. Oh, absolutely. That's what's happened. The system's been hijacked. The system's been hijacked. And That's the way right. you hijack that system is that you, you, you find, you know, you create flavors that, that are very stimulating, but then you make, feed, you make sure that there's feedback that conditions a strong preference. And, you know, I often show a video of lambs eating straw. There's two groups. One group um, is just loving the straw. They absolutely, and you know, straw is not a great food, right? I mean, it has, <laughs> but it's not, and this group is just like, this is the best food they've ever seen. And the other group is it, it, very quickly, they're just standing there watching the one group like, what on earth are you doing? And every time I show that video, I think that's exactly what the food industry did to condition preferences for for. For all these, all these processed foods, and what we did to make the lambs love the the straw is the minute they ate it, we drenched them with a with a blast of energy. You know, we gave them a blast of energy, and energy conditions very, very strong preferences. And you think of all those products, all of them. That's what they do. They've learned that you, you create, oftentimes, think how many familiar flavors are used in, in different things. The fruit, fruity flavors, one thing or another. Doritos and that are mimicking spices, herbs and spice flavors, which in their natural form, they're incredibly health promoting. They're incredibly nutritious. But so you mimic those kind of flavors and then you follow that with a blast of energy and uh, that's immediate and there's no better way to condition a preference and we all i love that stuff too honest to goodness i i love it and so the whole system's been hijacked so now you can no longer trust i mean the system's still <laughs> flavor feedback's still working it's just it's been so hijacked I think historically sources like this time of year all all the fruits that are that are coming on now you know that they're they're a great source of energy and they're a great source to 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 put on some fat for us and for other creatures growing into into the dormant season so that system works in a very very powerful and functional way but when you have non-stop access to highly processed foods that that uh, that really aren't health promoting you're you're in trouble and we're, we're in big trouble now. So that's where, you know, when I think of what you do with real organic and, you know, the importance of growing real foods in real soils, uh, I think a lot about the varieties, too, that we've selected for. Um, you know, a lot of those varieties aren't, aren't so good. I think we need to get back to some of the, the old varieties that were much more phytochemically rich. And this time of year here, uh, on a hike in the mountains, you can find 10, 12 different fruit producing plants. 
and they, they're each distinct in terms of their flavors, and certainly they're sweet, but they've got this phytochemical punch, this richness. I'm not a flavor tester, but they've got this richness that so many of the fruits nowadays just simply don't have anymore. It's, and that's not news to anyone. You know, the strawberry that looks great or the tomato that looks great or uh, the lettuce or whatever it is that look great, but they, they've lost that. I remember years ago, we were working with a fruit producer in Washington State. We were working to train sheep to avoid eating his trees. It was actually what we were doing through some of the things that we'd studied. But what was most interesting to me is he was talking about the changes that he'd seen over his long life term in terms of varieties of the different, and he had many different fruits in, on that orchard. Uh, and he, he was talking about the changes and he said, <clears throat> So nowadays, this is what you end up eating. But he said, we don't. I'm going to take you to the back of the orchard and I'll show you what we still eat. And he said, we kept these old, we kept some trees of these old plums and these old apples because there's no comparison in the flavor. So I, it seems to me, and I probably shouldn't be speaking too much because I, I'm, I'm not a person who who has done research or studied any of that, but it seems to me we ought to be thinking about how to create varieties of plants as part of a real organic movement that are really phytochemically rich. Um, fruits, vegetables, and then as we were talking, the animals, uh, meat and, and dairy that comes from that. And you probably know and are involved much more in those kind of things than I am, but I, it just strikes me so much how it's hard to get really flavorful varieties. You know, and it makes me think back when we were doing all of our studies of goats and sheep and cattle, nobody really cares about that per se. You know, I mean, I, this is putting it in this perspective that we're talking, nobody cares. But I would go to symposiums that had people from all all different walks of life related to this whole topic of, of, of nutrition and nutritional wisdom in this business. And the most fascinating talks to me were given by people from the food industry. They were so on top of all of that literature that we all were familiar with, you know, of, of behavioral literature. What causes creatures to eat what they eat and blah, blah, blah. And I used to think about we're all given the same talk. It's just we're studying different different creatures. And I thought, you know, that's where the money is. It's in humans. I mean, nobody cares about a goat or a sheep or a cow. Not in that sense. But you get with humans, that's the big leagues. That's where the money is. It just, it so struck me. I used to chuckle. And, you know, just listening. I remember a presentation when I was at a NATO conference over in the UK by a researcher from Switzerland works worked for Nestle. Fascinating presentation. And as I'm saying, it's he's just talking about the same literature that we're all familiar with scientifically, the, the behavioral principles and processes. We all know this. But he's talking about these little Vienna sausages and how Nestle was losing market shares of these sausages and how we how they turned it around. And it's like, oh man, this is fascinating stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just how you how you it's the same principles and processes. It's just how you use those. And it is the big leagues. It is I've been invited to give presentations at, at big national nutrition conferences and it's stunning. It's not surprising, but it's just 
reinforces of, you know, all the big companies are there with their banners and their support, and they're they're behind those conferences, and that's of course why because they're they're they they know where the action is, huh? And they know yeah. how where the action is related to new products. So it's it's science based, but it's hijacked. That's the thing I think it's it's they they figure out how to hijack the system and. That's where I always in the talks, and I know this sounds simplistic, but if we could get back to wholesome foods, the kind of things that Real Organic stands for, um, across the board from vegetables and fruits to animal products, be that chickens and eggs, bees and, bees and honey are the same thing. Do they have diverse diets or not? Changes the, if we could get back to, to really wholesome foods, and get back to a culture that ate those. It's like um, Roger Williams wrote a book back in 1956 called Biochemical Individuality. And there in one part of the book, he was talking about, you know, if if we, he was saying, they're talking about the uniqueness of individuals. Every one of us is different. And so he was talking, speculating about medicine. He's saying, you know, medicine's going to have to realize that. I'm going to have to deal with individuals, not populations because it's individuals that counts but then he was reflecting on this wisdom of the body and he said you know if that's in every creature there's really no need for nutrition as a discipline because if we're eating wholesome foods the body is the nutritionist but now it's been a kind of a discipline and i i totally value nutrition so i'm not trying to say that about any of my nutrition friends not not at all but but it's created its own nightmare as the medical industry and the pharmaceutical industry has. Right now, we need to, under, to study it to understand the 10 jillion ways that we've really kind of, of uh, hijacked systems that, that used to function um, really fairly well in, in a natural environment. Not to throw the baby out with the bathwater with medicine or pharmacy or any of that, but but we've really created our own nightmare in, in a lot of this, thinking that we were more clever than, than nature and natural processes. It goes back to your question about the, the plant-based meat. Huh? Yeah. We don't have a clue of, of all the complexity that's going on there in a natural system with diverse arrays of plants in the case of, of of meat that would come from that, I think we, we, our hubris gets the better of us. We think we, we really understand when, when we probably don't know much at, a, at all. Yeah, so let me ask you a little bit about soil. Um, you know, you are looking at systems. You look at ecosystems and, and landscapes. I love you talk about foodscapes. And, of course, soil is the foundational system that we're all part of. And you said something once, you said, plants turn dirt into soil and diverse communities of plants turn soil into homes. Beautiful. Yeah, and that's it for me. You know, and I say that a little bit as a reminder. And I, I very much appreciate the value of soil. And I think what's being what's being learned and appreciated nowadays about soil, it's kind of a, of a regeneration and a genesis, right? I mean, when we took soils back in the day, they talked so much about physical properties of soils, <clears throat> texture and 
chemistry and those kind of things. I, I don't remember much being talked about from a biological standpoint. And now that's just the soil microbiome and the relationship among organisms in the soil with plants, and those mutualistic, those beautiful kind of mutualistic relationships where the plant fixes energy from the sun. It shares some of that energy with organisms in the soil, which provide the plant in turn with, with things that the plant minerals that the plant needs and so forth. And again, how we've hijacked that system. If we provide nitrogen fertilizer, we hijack the system, right? Because right. now the plant no longer needs those organisms. I think of that all the time when I think of how food hijacks flavor feedback. It's the same thing. If you provide some of these, you know, we like to fortify those foods. So if you fortify them with something the body needs, then your likelihood of utilizing that fortified with vitamin C. Well, maybe you eat less peas or whatever. We study those kind of interactions all the time with animals. If they're getting it one place, they won't another. And so there with the soil, I think that you provide nitrogen and now these organisms are cut off from that 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 cycle. So so it's amazing what's being learned. I I like to use that to say what you said though that plants turn um, dirt into soil, and then diversity of plants turns soil into homes. And it's just to 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 as a reminder that this plant to me plant diversity i've been learn, hearing about diversity and biodiversity for 50 years now since i was a young undergraduate student and ecology was a fairly young discipline in those days but even then they were recognizing the relationship between diversity and resilience in systems and so we heard a lot about it and and i i understood i got that but after 50 years of just looking at these things in the way that that I did, which is just a subset of that, I just think, boy, plant diversity is really fundamental to health because it just creates these homes for this diverse array of creatures above and below ground. It's, it's amazing. And to see that now be, being more a part of farming systems and, uh, and certainly of rangeland systems to, to acknowledge and to recognize and to think about how do we enhance that? How do we um, do what we can to make that diversity so that we have healthy soils and organisms below and above ground? I, I just, um, it's another miracle of the whole system, huh? And then yes. when it comes to climate and changing climates, all that gets gets linked linked together, huh? Yeah. You had a uh, an image that really struck me. You said that uh, you're talking about in our culture, people go to the supermarket and forage and they've got, I think you said 600,000 items to choose from. And you said they're all attractively displayed and they're, you, we're foraging in the aisles for food. And you said, while many of these foods appear to be nutritious, they are slow acting toxins as deadly as arsenic, loco weed, <laughs> <laughs> or for in, yeah. And they deliver mixed signals, immediate positive flavor feedback, consequences, but delayed illness. So you, you write about this at some length in the book, and it's very interesting about sort of poisoning and how 
the way that uh, certain plants poison animals and what makes it effect, uh, make it makes it happen is that the animal eats it and it actually is good. It gets energy from the plant and it tastes good. But there's something in some plants like loco weed that have a profound, terrible effect on the plant down the road. So I thought it was quite interesting that you were comparing basically loco weed to Twinkies. <laughs> you know? That was absolutely the case, you know, and, and if you think about it, that's, I worked a lot with behaviorists that I really, uh, benef I learned so much, you know, when we, when we were starting into our work and throughout the work and they think about behavior by consequences and that, that contingencies shape our behavior and so forth. And it's a really good, rigorous way to think about these things. But what really gets us, you know, if the consequence follows the, the behavior immediately, we learn from that. But it's, it's those things that are delayed in time and distant in space. Climate change is a great example, huh? And it's a reason that, that a lot of people are simply probably going to have a very difficult time believing that that's real, huh? Because it's not something that's immediate. It's, it's happened over time. It's delayed in time and in space. And that's so, that really gets us. And uh, boy, these challenges, uh, it's, uh, yeah, they're personal in the sense that each one of us has them, but they're not personal in the sense that, you know, the foods that we're dealing with are engineered to create craving. And and they're engineered by people who are very good at what they do. And then they in, enforce it with, with advertising on a massive level so that it becomes what you do. It becomes the, the norm. And I think, you know, to build an alternative to that, and I don't say this in a self-righteous way, but, you know, to build a slow food culture is a cultural shift. And it's hard to shift cultures. But we can do it. And, you know, we have to find the ways and some of it's going to be in school and, and some of it is going to be just how do you make it more fun and more interesting to eat better food. And, you know, these are political issues. Now, I don't just mean voting in the polling place, but this is political as part of this whole system that we're part of. Amen to everything you, you said, Dave. A amen to all of that. And I think, you know, so... We could do more science on a whole bunch of things, but there's already so much that's known. Where the action is, is how do you change, how do you start to change the, that's, you know, it's like, let's not even worry so much about more science and more this and that. Let, let's, I think there's enough that's known to say, well, we need to, to change it. So how do we? And I'm had doing reflecting right now myself of, you know, how, how, what are the ways that, that and I, I so admire what you've been doing in that sense, you, you and, and your, your partners well, in Fred, crime. So, I'm so just having a good time. I get to talk to people I really like. And so that's my point, is we need to make this fun, not, not something that we whip ourselves about, but, but how do we make this a celebration of things that we like, that Absolutely. we want to affirm? Absolutely, absolutely. And it is fun and it is neat and interesting, huh? Yes, it is. Yeah. I've had such an interesting time in the last six years. You know, I was an organic farmer basically all my adult life. And six or seven years ago when I started to be involved in these debates about 
about whether or not something that was grown without soil could be called organic, whether a hydroponic production. And a good friend of mine said, well, Dave, why can't it be called organic if they use organic inputs? And I said, well, I know the answer to that, but I can't really explain it very well. I was inarticulate. And, and I said, well, you know, the principle of organic is you feed the soil, not the plant. And hydroponic is exactly feeding the plant. There is no soil. But I thought, you know, I need to talk to some soil scientists. I need to talk to some nutritionists. And so I have. And what an interesting journey that has been. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, okay, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I just want to say... You might have left the university, but you haven't left teaching, and uh, you're out teaching quite a lot. And uh, you know, you've you've written one of the great books of our decade. So, Fred Provenza, thank you so much for spending this time today. Uh, I really appreciate it, David. I, I can't tell you how much, and this is going to, of course, this is what you're supposed to say, but I can't tell you how sincere I am when I say what a joy it's been to to actually visit with you uh, here today and just to be able to share share these kind of experiences. It's so, yeah, it's just beyond words. It's, it's absolutely wonderful for me. I mean it from the depths of my heart. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to our conversation, can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 31. Please join us next time for an interview with Karen Washington, farmer, community activist, and co-founder of the Black Farmer Fund. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. <laughs>